Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of discussions with entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. Lawyerist supports attorneys building client-centered and future-oriented law firms through community, content, and coaching, both online and through The Lawyerist Lab. And now, here are the co-authors of The Small Firm Roadmap and your podcast hosts. Hey y'all, I'm Zach Glazer. And I'm Stephanie Everett, and this is episode 332 of the Lawyers Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. In today's episode, I'm talking with lawyer, author, and lab alumna Megan Xavier about what it means to be a modern lawyer and the role ethics and technology play in it all. Today's podcast is brought to you by Text Expander, Postali, and Rankings.io. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support. So stay tuned, and we'll tell you more about them later on. So Zach, it's officially summer, in my mind at least. This summer, we're tackling the Small Firm Roadmap. We're covering it as a book club kind of discussion inside our Insider Facebook group. And this week, we're reading Chapter 3, where we talk about rethinking law as a business. Yeah, and I think this is something that's important for attorneys as they go into running their firm. And it's not necessarily something that we all want to think about. In fact, and we say this in the book, for a long time, lawyers have resisted the idea that their law firm is a business and in fact, get offended. And they say like, I'm a professional, you know, I'm not a business owner. And so we wanted to challenge that idea a little bit because maybe there are some benefits to you actually understanding that yes, we are a profession and we are professionals, but there's a benefit to thinking about our business well as a business. And I think as soon as you sit down with QuickBooks and you start doing your accounting and you start having to figure out what is a profits and loss statement, what does all this stuff look like? I know that this happened to me when I started running my practice. And at that point, you're a business. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And you need to start thinking of it. How do I run this in a way that is beneficial to me, my clients, people that work at my firm? And how do I make this work to do what I want to do with this to help people. Yeah, I think that's such the cool point is that when you embrace this idea that we're actually building an organization that is systems and processes and teams and things, and maybe just not practicing law, it actually allows you to serve your clients better and help the community more, which probably is why you started your firm in the first place was to help people even today, we're going to talk to Megan about ethics and bar complaints. Well, what are the two sources that we always hear are the subject of bar complaints? It's communication and money, which has nothing to do with practicing law. Those are about running your business. <laughs> so it's so funny to me that we've got so ingrained in divorcing this idea of being a business owner and being a professional. No, like this actually is going to allow us to be a better professional if we are running a better business. Those two ethical issues are indicative of what our clients are looking for with us. They're looking for us to be honest with them, obviously, and then communicate with them. And like you said, that is mainly part of running a business. You don't have to be the greatest litigator in the world to run a fantastic law firm. You don't have to be 
really, really good at appellate briefs to run a fantastic law firm. But on the flip side of that, if you are a phenomenal litigator, but you don't do a good job of running a business, either you're going to stop being a phenomenal litigator pretty soon because you're not going to have a business, or you need to hire somebody that can help you run that business. I love that framing. And so I love I love that we're really digging in to the topics we explored in the book and discussing them this summer. The other kind of cool thing we're doing here on the podcast and how this is going to tie in, we're taking the opportunity to really interview and talk to our lab alumni and our current labsters who are putting these concepts from the book into practice. And Megan's our first example of that. And so um, we don't really talk necessarily in this interview about the things she's doing to run her business, although she has a really cool business model. But I think it's going to be a fun summer of really thinking about what are these big picture concepts that we've been talking about? And then how do those actually play out in practice? And I think that's going to help us see some examples of how people can run these. We have a lot of labsters that are doing things very different from each other, but also running um, a, a lot of fantastic businesses. Now we have Stephanie's conversation with Megan. Hi, I'm Megan Xavier, and I am a state bar defense attorney. My work is based in California, so what that really means is I defend lawyers facing ethics complaints in front of the state bar, and I also represent new attorneys going through the admissions process, also primarily in California. And I love advising lawyers who are practicing on ethics issues outside of the discipline system. Megan, welcome back to the show. I know you've been on before, and I feel like we've had a little bit of a full circle moment here because a couple of years ago when we launched the Small Farm Roadmap, you were so gracious and had me as a guest on your podcast talking about the book. And so now I get to interview you on our podcast with your new book, The Modern Lawyer, Ethics and technology in an evolving world. What a great topic. So welcome back. Welcome back. I love that. That is full circle, isn't it? I know. I was like, when I was preparing, I was like, oh, this is so fun. She's interviewed me. Now I get to interview her. And I'm super excited about the book and loved diving into it. Because one of the things that struck me right at the beginning, and so we're just going to kind of jump right in, is... Yeah, technology and how fast it's changing. And you told this great story in the book that I would love for you to share of how you kind of thought about technology, like even in just your adult life, not even your entire life. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you go entire <laughs> life, you're talking three and a half inch discs were like modern or, you know, <laughs> yeah, that, that can really date a person. But just even in my adult life, one of the most striking ways that I think about the evolution of technology is by looking at the births of my four children. So I had four children over the course of just over seven years. We lived in various places. Every child was born in a different place. And the role that technology played in each birth and the announcement of each birth to our families strikes me. So the first birth was in New Jersey. And there's a picture of me taken with a film camera in a hospital at the time with me on a flip phone calling my dad to let him know he had become a grandpa for the first time. Second birth was in California. In our birth center, we had more family because we were near other people, but we were phoning them on our iPhones and sending pictures instantly. Everyone got to see her right away. The 
third birth, we were in Australia and we happened to have Skype set up with some friends in California and they ended up on Skype with my other children while the birth was happening. And my midwife, who I was texting to arrive to get them, she didn't get there. Hello. <laughs> so, so my mom caught that baby and our friends in California were actually instructing my mother over Skype because one of them is a firefighter. And so the, it just so happened that that was the family we were Skyping with. So he's there on Skype, able to see what's going on, helping my mom, and then entertaining our kids. Apparently they were playing some like virtual monopoly or something <laughs> halfway around the world on Skype. And then by the fourth child, we were just easily FaceTiming all the family from Iran to California. We were in Georgia. So this was in 2014. And you go, oh, wow, seven years ago, it was use the flip phone, call someone, wait for the film to get developed. Now, I was a little behind on the digital camera revolution, definitely. But that's a tremendous shift. And that's seven years. That's only seven years. That's crazy. What a, what crazy story. I love the stories. I love the Skype. And yeah, thank God that firefighter could talk your mom through it. Oh my gosh. He still talks about that. He That's his favorite birth. You have all of our kids. And actually, this is not like we didn't name our baby after him, but they actually do have the same name. So he's all, <laughs> like, he really likes that child the best. Yeah, I love that connection. Sometimes we forget and we're so used to using the technology that's in front of us. We forget that it wasn't that long ago that it did look really different. And I can't even imagine, it's hard to think about what will it look like in seven years. I mean, I finally broke down and got my Apple Watch. So I'm like, oh, talking on my watch now, which is a thing that feels like the Jetsons. Oh, totally. R lift your wrist and talk and someone's actually on the other end. Yeah. So am I just going to like think about something and make a phone call? I have no idea. But as lawyers, and you know this, we've talked about this forever. We're slow. We're slow to adopt and we're nervous about it. And you talk in the book a lot about this overwhelming sense of fear. And I'm so glad you named that fear. I think for a lot of us, we want to embrace the technology and we're excited about it. But there is this overarching fear that comes up. I mean, how do you see that coming up for lawyers? Well, lawyers are just by nature cautious anyway. I remember early law practice years, probably even in law school, talking about being risk averse. At first, I was really offended by that idea. And then I was like, Oh, yeah, actually, look around. We are risk averse. And that's because what we deal with from really the first day of law school is all the stuff that can go wrong. And so we don't see opportunity first. We see the risks first. And that's because we're trained to. And that's actually what makes us good at our job. So we shouldn't discount a healthy dose of skepticism and fear. It does keep our clients safe and generally keeps us safe. But we get so mired in it. And we tend to blame the rules that govern the profession, so the ethics rules primarily, as the reason why we're afraid and the justification for not acting. And that always upsets me because I'm like, no, the ethics rules actually don't constrain us as much as people often think. They certainly constrain us, no doubt. This is why having an Amazon Alexa sitting next to your desk at work is probably a bad idea. That one always scares me. We can't just jump in without thinking, but it shouldn't always hold us back either. I love that. That's so smart. And so when we're trying to think about the technology, I mean, one of the things you talk about in the book is that for some people the fear paralyzes them and they just don't do anything. For other people, it's almost like they just try to ignore it or they assume they know the rules. Oh, 
that. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you told some good stories in there about people just think, oh, this must be a rule. I'll just do this one thing, but they're really missing half of it. I know in the book, you try to set out an approach that people should take. You know, what are your best tips as you're approaching this new technology? What should you do? What is the right way to think about it? Well, one of the first things is actually go read the rules, which should not be revolutionary, but I am often shocked by how many lawyers have not actually just sat down and read the rules. Also, they change. So that's not a one-time thing. And you're not going to remember them, even if you have read them before. I mean, they're relatively lengthy. They're not overwhelmingly huge, but they're long enough that if you went to read them for a specific purpose, you probably remember what you went there to read, but you don't remember them all. You don't remember the nuances of issues you weren't looking at at the time. So whenever you're going to set out to do something new, you should read them and read them in their entirety because it's not just one little rule that's going to apply to you. You're going to have to figure it out what all the rules are that apply to your situation. And also read current ethics opinions. That's a really big thing because ethics opinions can come out much more easily than rules can change. The glacial pace of rule change is just staggering. But ethics opinions do come out. Pennsylvania came out with one specifically related to working from home during COVID in like April of 2020. They're like, hey, we got an issue. People are wondering what to do. Let's get an ethics opinion out there. So those are something that I think everyone should be keeping up on in their jurisdiction. And if you're going to do something new, go read the last five to 10 years of ethics opinions. You know, sift through them, not, don't read them all, but look at the titles, see what ones apply to your situation and see what the current thinking is on your issue. So that's just a real basic figure out what those rules are. And when you talk about like the rules being so slow, and I think everybody would agree I think there's this overarching sense that the rules are slow, technology's moving fast, and how do those two even lay down together? And so I think there's an assumption that the rules probably just don't even address or there's just a void of guidance on how we should approach things. But what I hear you saying is maybe that's not necessarily true or there's ethics opinions out there that can give us some guidance. To a certain extent, yes. I mean, the ethics opinions are certainly going to move faster than the rules. We also are trained to take a situation, read case law that's not our exact facts, and extrapolate from the case law to figure out what applies in our current situation. So that's the same with the ethics rules and technology. You're not going to go and find an ethics opinion about TikTok. They're not going to write about that yet, if ever. But you are going to find ethics opinions on confidentiality, on public sharing of information. We're talking today about blogging opinions. Like they came out at some point in time after blogs started. So we're still talking years ago, but they apply, don't they? Public dissemination of information that's not direct to one person that's available on a website 24 hours a day. Well, you can read that and go, okay, my use of TikTok is probably akin to these opinions talking about blogging. We are trained to do that. And then do you think it's up to the individual lawyer whether they read those rules? It's probably like with everything, right? Like how risk adverse are we? Do we want to take the aggressive approach or the conservative approach or somewhere in between? Yeah, definitely, because ultimately you're responsible, right, for your own conduct and the conduct of those you supervise. And so it falls on our shoulders in the end. And when I consult with lawyers who are thinking about doing something that they're not sure how the rules are going to apply, we talk about what is that range of behavior? 
what are the possible outcomes to violating the rules if someone were to read the rules differently than you did and that person isn't in a position of authority over you like the state bar you know what are the possible defenses what are the possible outcomes and then you know everyone has to choose for themselves what they're comfortable doing i love that and i love that it doesn't have to be one size fit all but it's a process and i think you said that right at the beginning of this book that whatever i write about in this book will probably be outdated in terms of technology, when the book is actually published. And so what you did so nicely in the book is set out a framework for how lawyers should think through these issues and approach these problems. Because then I think with that framework, to your point, this is actually what we're trained to do. We should be able to make these decisions for ourselves and our business. Yeah, exactly. So I think there's a couple of things that probably in today's world, though, might make sense, you know, and be helpful for people if we cover with COVID sort of nearing the end of the worst of it. I don't think it goes away ever, but that's just me. But you know, things are starting to open back up and people are getting vaccinated. But a lot of lawyers are seeing like remote work and virtual offices. Maybe there was something there that they enjoyed from the pandemic. And they're thinking of now putting that in place permanently as they move forward. And you point this out that there are some potential sticky thorns that you should be thinking about when it comes to those topics in particular. So what do we need to be aware of if we're thinking of staying remote and having a virtual team? Well, I had a virtual team pre-pandemic and will never go back. So for me, I'm like, yes, (laughs) you all came over and saw how great this is. So I love it when people say, I want to keep this up. I kind of cringe when I've got the lawyers who say, you know, no, we got to go back to the physical office, shut down the remote work. Everybody come back. It worked for the last year, but now let's go back. Like, But it worked. It worked for the last year. So why are you doing that? So one thing to think about with analyzing whether to stay remote and how to stay remote is that we kind of got away with a lot in the beginning of COVID. I just refer to the COVID excuse. You know, the COVID excuse got you by on all kinds of things, many things which had nothing whatsoever to do with COVID. All of a sudden, it was a blanket excuse for everything. And lawyers who did not set up really quite appropriately or how they should have at the beginning got away with it and staff dealt with things in ways that maybe were less than ideal at the beginning And now we really need to be like, okay, this is no longer a special emergency. Even just now, even still with COVID a year in, it's not an emergency anymore. (laughs) We really should be doing things right. So at the end of the day, the big concerns with working remotely still remain basic, basic rules of ethics, such as confidentiality and security of client data. So that's to me where most of the focus needs to be when you're setting up or continuing or making permanent a remote team, you know, is everyone working in a secure way? Do you know where your team is and how they're working? You know, I have a team member who used to work from an RV traveling around the country who now works from a boat. I know how she's set up. I'm comfortable with the security measures she's taken, but we've had that conversation. You should know these things. If you're outsourcing, if you're, you know, employees are remote. Yeah, no. How are they connecting? Where are they having client calls? Who's next to them? Who's who's in their shared space? And how is this information being handled? 
Same with if you're outsourcing things like virtual receptionists, which is becoming more and more popular. I mean, it was already a pretty popular option, but I feel like even everyone who did have a physical office is moving in that direction. Where is the data stored that they have as they receive calls and are calls recorded? Where are those recordings held? You know, are you complying with all of the laws with that? So that basic bit of confidentiality and security is going to be your number one. Another is supervision, which is where I hear most of the old school lawyers, especially really freaked out about making the remote work permanent. We are the ones that all those duties fall upon. Even if we're supervising other lawyers, we're still responsible for what even the lawyers do. So the lawyers, the non-lawyer staff, the outsourced companies and staff, those all come back to us. So you have to make sure that you have measures in place to know what work they're doing. So it's not just how they're doing it and keeping the data secure, but what are they doing? Just like we couldn't, even pre-pandemic, say to a marketing company, here's access to my website, update it as you see fit. No, you were responsible for that. We can't get sloppy with the remote teams in terms of our supervision. And if you have a team of people who are working on substantive client matters, I think that becomes even more important because I hear this a lot from small firms where they have one or maybe two lawyers, but then a lot of paralegal staff that actually really drive the firm personal injury, family law, where they rely heavily on that non-lawyer staff. You've got to make sure your training is solid and just as good of supervision and training as when you were in the office together. And I could imagine systems and processes and how you're tracking work and how you're reviewing work become even more important when we don't see each other every day. And it's just easier to have a sense of what people are doing when you see them and talk to them and hang out with them by the coffee pod, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. But now we can do that through technology. Not some of the draconian ideas that I know were floated, especially at the beginning, like having people on Zoom or other camera all day and making sure you're being watched. Like, please don't be doing that. But we should be working in some kind of centralized system. This is not a time for everybody to be working on their home computer that's not networked to anything else, saving on their local hard drive and emailing documents around. If you're having a team working on client matters, that should be through some form of case management software where everyone can see what's being done, where documents are shared, saved to your network drives, you know, these sorts of things where it's just like you were in an office. Don't be jerry-rigging it so everyone's just bootstrapping it and making it work from home. This should be actually organized like an office, just without the physical proximity. You know, and you saying that reminds me of something that I know um, Sam Glover's talked about before, and it just kind of always gives me an aha moment. Something as simple as handing your cell phone to your kid while you're waiting for that table at a restaurant, which I know for whatever reason for my child, that seems to be the hardest place to have patience. Right? So it's just so easy to be like, here, play a game. But if that is your law firm, if you're using your phone, which is now a mini computer, as we just talked about, it's no longer that little flip phone that just makes calls. For most of us probably has secure client data, ways to communicate, you have just handed your firm over to your child. And that's probably not what we should be doing is what I'm thinking you're going to tell me. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm certainly guilty of it. So I'll never proselytize that no one should ever let their kid play on their phone. But I did have a, 
a very young child at the time, suck on a Blackberry owned by my law firm to the point that it had water damage <laughs> had to replace it. So even without the data issue, I've been sensitive to that for a very long time. But yes, that's a huge concern. That phone, not only whether you're handing it to your child who could inadvertently send an email, make a phone call. Haven't we all had them do that or answer a call? Oh, so sorry. Not sure what happened there. Beyond those obvious things, your phone just losing it or leaving it somewhere unsecured. And if you're not using the proper security measures to get into at least the apps that are really important that contain that client data, you're really leaving your whole law firm door wide open. Yeah. And so obviously the same goes for your home office. You just need to have a different setup and needs to be professional and protected and secured. We need to take a break to hear from our sponsors. When we come back, though, I want to talk about the big hairy thing no one wants to talk about, which is ethics complaints and violations. Support for today's broadcast comes from Text Expander. Work smarter, not harder, with Text Expander. Text Expander helps you work faster and smarter so you can focus your time on your most important work. With just a few keystrokes, Text Expander keeps you consistent, accurate, and working efficiently. Speed through emails, expand forms with fill in the blank fields using a quick abbreviation. Use Text Expander's powerful shortcuts and abbreviations to streamline and speed up everything you type. Get your message right every time by expanding content that corrects your spelling and keeps your language consistent with a few keystrokes. Show listeners get 20% off their first year. Just visit textexpander.com forward slash podcast to learn more. Support for today's broadcast comes from Postali. Building the next powerhouse law firm takes hard work and an entrepreneurial spirit. But some skills escape even the savviest of attorneys. To reach new heights in your legal practice, you need a genuine marketing partner, one that tells you where you are now and where your firm could go. Postali works with law firms nationwide, and their trademarked marketing fiduciary services sets them apart from every other vendor that's cold calling or flooding your inbox. Whether it's informal guidance about things you can do today or a big-picture approach to law firm expansion, Postali is perfect for business-minded attorneys with an eye on the future. No matter where you are in your journey, Postali is the full-service, strategic marketing partner that grows with your firm. To learn more about the services Postali offers, visit postali.com forward slash lawyerist and reach out for a free consultation. Support for today's episode comes from Rankings.io, a search engine optimization agency working exclusively for personal injury law firms. Simply put, Rankings.io helps personal injury law firms dominate first page rankings. You'll never have to chase them for an update or hunt them down for an answer. Your clients expect you to be accessible, and rankings will meet that standard for communication and transparency. You'll have a full team of SEO specialists fighting to put you at the top of Google search results. Personal Injury Lawyer SEO is all they do, so all of their processes, playbooks, and people are completely focused on generating qualified cases for your firm. Best of all, you'll be one of an elite few. Delivering exceptional service and results requires focus. So Rankings.io carefully vets clients before accepting them. They're an ideal fit for growth-oriented personal injury law firms. To see if you're a fit, visit Rankings.io forward slash lawyerist to get started. 
All right, Megan, we are back. And in your book, I'm so glad you covered this because I think, I mean, I can say as a practicing a lawyer, we all just have this cloud of doom and concern and this thing that hangs over us every day, which is a potential for an ethics complaint or some kind of violation or malpractice suit. And I love that in the book, you gave us some step-by-step instructions of what you should actually do, because we know the potential's out there, but most of us probably aren't very prepared for what we do if something happens. So what's the first rule when we're faced with some kind of complaint or violation? Well, the very first rule is just to pay attention to it and actually handle it. It's really sad, but a huge number of cases are out there where lawyers just buried their heads in the sand and did not deal with bar complaints. And even if it turned out to be meritless, you know, the bar doesn't know that because you never told them. And so people end up disciplined. You can actually even end up disbarred for simply not dealing with a bar complaint. Yeah, which is really sad and maybe indicative of why there was a problem in the first place, maybe. Possibly. Although I will say that well, lawyers generally, right, we have a lot of issues with burnout and depression anyway. We're in an incredibly stressful profession. When I always love to refer back to, speaking of Sam Glover, one of his articles from my gosh, it's probably over 10 years ago now. It's probably not even online available anymore. But he wrote an article about why our fees are so high was the idea. And underpinning his article was the idea that we take on your problems as our own, right? And so you pay us so you don't have to worry, but now we worry. And the piece of that that I always carry with me is that's where our stress comes from, right? It is our job to carry other people's burdens. So forget just our own, and that's plenty, usually our families, because don't they all rely on the lawyer and the family? Now we carry all of our clients' burdens. And so we as a profession are incredibly stressed. We suffer from high rates of depression and really embarrassingly horrible statistics with substance abuse. Yeah. So we have all of that that we carry anyway. So even if what originally caused your bar problem was not your dereliction of duty, your inability to cope, when on top of everything else you're carrying, you now have a bar complaint. It's often the straw that breaks the camel's back. So while the lawyer was carrying on, was doing okay, that bar complaint can send them just over the edge. And then knowing it's there, they just shut down. And I see that a lot. That resonates because I know sometimes for me, I'll have an email in my inbox and I can just tell by the sender and the subject, it's not good news, right? We've all had those like, oh, there's that problem client again, they're going to be upset or they're going to be telling me something I don't want to hear. And I'm sure we've all felt like this. That's like the last email that I want to open. And I will confess that there have maybe have been times in my life where I didn't run to open that email and just even skipped over it in my inbox. And so I could imagine that bar complaint could feel that way too, where you're just like, I'm not ready to look at it. I don't want to look at it. It seems really scary because you haven't looked at it. And and then it just sits and then you don't do anything with it. I'm almost like want to tell people, send it to Megan and let her read it. And she can break the news to you in a nice, calm way. It's like you need those test results. Like it's not as bad as you thought this too, we we can come up with a plan and we can address it. Because like you said, a lot of times you just need to provide the bar with information and I'm sure it can get resolved. It can be worked out. Exactly. It is the hairy monster that gets in the closet that gets worse and worse the longer you don't open that letter. I've actually had a client call me 
with a letter from the bar in their hand and they said, I can't open it. So will you sit on the phone with me while I open it? I'm like, okay, sure. I'm glad you're opening it. And then in that particular instance, it turned out to be absolutely nothing. Yeah. But I get it. I mean, I get that fear that we all just kind of, you're like, oh, you know, so do deal with it. That's great advice. What other big mistakes do you see attorneys making or things we should be thinking about? One that I see people make with the actual bar complaint process is sort of the flip side of not responding at all is responding really quickly and without enough thought put into it. So any attorney who receives a bar complaint, 99% of the time, your reaction is going to be defensive, right? It's what? No, that's ridiculous. They're lying. They're missing the point, whatever. And if you respond really quickly in that emotional window that you have when you first get that bar complaint, well, you're stuck with it and you wish you weren't. (laughs) So it needs to be a process by which you calm down, at least get some counsel to go through it with you. I'm not someone who thinks that every bar complaint warrants hiring a lawyer to handle it for you. It's not necessarily a super popular opinion amongst the defense bar, but I don't think we all have fools for clients if we handle it ourselves. There are times when lawyers are perfectly capable of doing that, but they should have some counsel to get them sort of prepared for it. What are the potential consequences of this complaint? What do I need to give them? What should I not be talking about? Is privilege waived? Is a complaint from someone who's not my client? So there is no waiver. What do I need to gather to effectively respond to this. It needs to be something where you calmly take the time to put something really good together to submit to the bar, just like you would if it were for a client. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on when you should bring in somebody else to help you with that process? There are definitely lawyers who should not be handling it themselves. Partly it's the lawyer and partly it's the situation. So if the situation is one where if the bar proves these allegations against you, you'd be disbarred or suspended for a significant period of time, which you may not be able to tell that on the face. I have lawyers who think they're going to get disbarred where the allegations would not support anything near it. But if those consequences are really potentially severe, I'd want you to have counsel from day one. Do not touch this yourself. It's like needing brain surgery versus taking a splinter out. Like, Don't even attempt this yourself. Get someone involved. The other is when the lawyer just is not in a position to do this. Now, sometimes that's the depression and substance abuse that we were talking about. Some just are not capable of handling it. Other times it's that they're just too close to it and they're really emotional about it. That can be because of who the complaining witness is, how hard they worked on the case, how nasty the allegations are. You know, it can come from a lot of places. Also, just the lawyer's personality sometimes is what causes it, where I'll have a consultation with someone and go, look, you're just not in a good place to handle this yourself. You need someone else to write this for you. I appreciate, you know, you've brought up mental health several times, which makes so much sense. I just realized I'm bringing an opinion of this into the discussion of, If we have mental health issues, is the bar going to be kind to us? People are legitimately suffering and may have made some mistakes. And I think the worry or concern is if we're, if we come forward with that, or if we try to get help, or it does result in a bar complaint, you know, it's trouble no matter what. And I guess, since you deal with this every day, is my perception right? Or are bar associations now more willing to to work with attorneys seeing the suffering? I would like to say that they're more willing. The public image is certainly that they are more willing 
there's more movement toward removing mental health questions from admissions questionnaires and blocking the ability of bars to inquire into mental health issues during the admissions process. So I'd say there's a movement toward it being more well-received. I still am concerned for every client who comes to me and that's a piece of their case because it can go both ways. On the one hand, it can be a mitigating factor if you're in treatment and you can show, especially at the time you're facing discipline, that since the conduct underlying the discipline, you've really resolved the issue. If they can, because sometimes we're talking conduct that happened pretty significant time before. And if we can show, okay, since that time you've been in therapy, you're really doing well, we'll use that to their benefit. But it can also really undercut resolution of their matter. You know, it can really harm us if the mental health issue is not resolved, or at least not to the bar's satisfaction. And when I say the bar, I'm talking, you know, sometimes a young deputy trial counsel who's only been a prosecutor and you know, you're really trying to convince this person that someone significantly older and more experienced in both life and law now is doing better. And they'll go, no, I don't think so. And you're, you're kind of stuck. And it can also prolong resolution of the case if they go into some kind of a diversion program. So in California, it's called the alternative discipline program. That can mean that they're in the discipline system for at least three years of counseling and meetings in order to resolve their case in a more favorable way based upon that mental health issue. So it's most definitely not a clear cut decision of whether to raise your mental health issues. I saw a Twitter discussion recently about what's the role of bar associations in today's world and should we even care? And it seems to me through this conversation, we all should care. These are issues that impact us and our entire profession and our voice matters. So this is your chance. If you're not currently in these discussions and asking these questions of your bar and how they're handling things, maybe you should. Maybe we should all get more involved for our own sake because we do need lawyers. We do need to create places where we can get help and know that that's going to be a good thing. It should be a good thing. And so I don't know, that's my soapbox that I didn't know I was going to get on. But you just made that so obvious to me that was like, wow, like, why are we not we need to be a lot more vocal about what we need as lawyers from the boards governing us. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. You know, I make fun of lawyers for being special snowflakes that, oh, I need a special, you know, Apple Watch app because I'm a lawyer and I need a special this for law. And oh, is my, you know, whatever app I want to buy, is it built for lawyers? And to a certain extent, I think it's kind of funny because we just think we're so special and need everything different. But when it comes to support for each other, there absolutely is something to talking to another lawyer about whatever is going on with you. We've been through the same training. We're in the same profession with the same stresses and even across practice areas, even vastly different ones from corporate over to litigation, you know, that seems like we don't have so much in common. We still get it when someone is talking to us about their problems. And if you're not married to a lawyer, even talking to your spouse, sometimes it's like the reaction that you might get just one of your problems, you go, wait, no, that just doesn't make sense. This isn't helpful. And so when we have networks of other lawyers that we can communicate with, especially about our stresses and issues within the profession, I just think that's a tremendous benefit. And whether that's provided by our regulators, which 
concerns me a bit because I don't completely trust the confidentiality that should be there, or if it's provided by outside resources through networking that goes on like lawyerists and others that are, you know, in Facebook groups and other networks of lawyers, seeking that out, I think is a very important piece of managing stress, whether you're actually in the throes of depression or just in the profession generally. So smart, such great advice. I'm so glad that we got to talk today. I love the book. We'll put it in the show notes, but it's The Modern Lawyer Ethics and Technology in an Evolving World. And Megan just did such a great job of framing how we should be thinking about these issues because technology is going to keep changing. Whether we like it or not, we need to be ready for it and need to do it in a responsible and ethical way. So, Megan, thanks so much for being with me today. Thank you so much for having me, Stephanie. The Lawyerist Podcast is produced by Bailey Tiller and edited by Ryan Croft. Are you ready to implement the ideas we discussed here into your practice? Wondering what to do next? Here are your first two steps. First, if you haven't read the Small Firm Roadmap yet, grab the first chapter for free at lawyerist.com book. Looking for help beyond the book? Let's chat about whether our coaching communities are right for you. Head to lawyerist.com community lab to schedule a 15-minute call with our community manager. The views expressed by the participants are their own and not endorsed by the Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.